I'm just curious, how many of you already sponsor a compassion child? That is fantastic. I, I would like to say on behalf of compassion, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being part of changing a child or a few children's lives by your sponsorship. Uh, we've been able to visit a number of our own children and go on some exposure trips with compassion. And the thing I am always struck by is um, this word hope. Uh, because we will take a bus or a vehicle through some of the most desperate, hopeless places that are just riddled with poverty, destroyed by poverty, and you come into, you drive into the Compassion Project and everything changes. There's hope and joy. And I've come to the conclusion that poverty is not just uh, robbing people of food or health care or education or opportunity but it literally robs them of hope. And a Richmond mentioned that in that video. And so when you're a part of compassion, you are not only providing food uh, and uh, access to clothing, if that's needed, and education and health care, but you are providing the ultimate hope, uh, the hope of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you caught it on that video, but every four minutes around the world, there's some child who's making a commitment to follow Jesus in a compassion project. I think that's phenomenally good news. For those of you who are sponsors, I want to encourage you, keep writing those cards and letters. Uh, they really make a world of difference. They really communicate to those children, we love you, we care. And they hang on to those as prized possessions. We've experienced that ourselves. Uh, I've been involved in youth ministry since 1979. That's when I first started volunteering and eventually became a youth pastor. And I love having so many young people close here. This is fantastic. A number of years ago, as I was getting ready uh, for a youth event, I corralled most of the students into the room. And there was this one girl named Barb. She was hanging out outside the room I was trying to get everybody into. I said, Barb, are you coming? She said, no, 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 I don't think so. I said, how come? She said, there's no one in there. And I looked in the room, and I said to her, one of us needs glasses, because I think I see at least 35 people in there. She said, I don't know anyone in there. And I said, well, Barb, I'm going to be in there. You know me. And she said, without any hesitation, yeah, but I don't know anyone in there that matters. Oh, oh, that's, I love you too. Thank you. Uh, she was making the point that, she, she didn't have any close friendships with people there, but she put her finger on a button that I think uh, exists in most of our hearts, and she firmly pushed it. And that button is this. It, 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 it releases this nagging question, does my life really matter? Uh, does my life count? Is my life significant? And I don't know if you've ever kind of thought about that, but it seems to me that many of us live with this fear that as we go through life and evaluate our lives, we'll discover that our life has not mattered. I was talking to Donna about this one night. We got talking about the difference between significance and value. Everyone in this room has value. Our lives have value because we're created by the God of the universe who valued you enough to send Jesus. This is not a matter of value. We all have value. But do we have significance? Does my life matter? And this morning I'd like us to think a little bit about how do we live our lives so we don't waste them? 
How do we live lives of significance? Now, I don't know if you've ever kind of thought of where that fear might come from. Uh, I think we're all aware that we have significant physical needs. Uh, We have the need to eat. Uh, We have the need to breathe. Uh, We have the need to sleep. Uh, Students, young people tend to ignore that need on retreats and at camps and stuff, but we still have that need. Uh, We have the need to drink. Uh, We have the need to go to the washroom. And if you don't believe those are legitimate physical needs, just very casually place your hand over your neighbor's nose and mouth and see how long they passively sit there. I I can guarantee before long fights would start to break out because we will do crazy things to get our needs met. It's just a reality. There's an interesting verse in James chapter 4. And I believe just like we have legitimate physical needs. The God of the universe has created us with deep inside emotional needs. And in James chapter 4, starting at verse 1, it says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. I find it very interesting. He asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? I believe it's those deep inside needs, those desires. He says, don't they come from those desires that battle within you? And I think we all have at least three deep inside needs. Everybody in this room has a need to be loved. I believe everybody in this room has a need to deal with the pain, to somehow make sense of the chaos and hurt that sweeps into our lives. And then we all have the need to know that our life matters. A reason to get up in the morning. A reason to keep going on. And I'm convinced, if you look at any odd behaviors uh, that that just seem so strange, like the, the junior high student who seems to come from a good, relatively functional home, but runs away. Why? I bet if you could get with them and really get below the surface, you would discover they're trying to medicate at least one of those inside needs to be loved and accepted, to make some kind of sense out of the pain in their lives and be able to deal with that or to have some kind of significance. Why does the high school student seem to not be okay unless they're in some kind of a romantic relationship. And as a youth worker over the years, I've run into these students who who just go from one romantic relationship to another romantic relationship to another romantic relationship. I suspect if you could really get under the surface, you'd discover they're trying to medicate a need to be loved and accepted, to have some kind of significance or to deal with pain. Why does the middle-aged businessman with a family suddenly decide to throw it all away and run off with the secretary or something. I think if you were to scratch under the surface, you would discover he's trying to medicate one or more of those deep inside needs. We've all been wired by God to need to be significant. We want to know that our lives are not meaningless, to have a a reason to get up in the morning, to know that somehow we matter. And our culture has a number of different ways of assigning significance to people. For some people, occupation equals significance. What's the first question you'll often get asked at a a social gathering? What do you do? And if you're maybe a doctor or a lawyer or an astronaut, oh, you'd be up here in the stratosphere. If you happen to be a 
garbage collector or caretaker, something that's less significant. You're, you're plotted in a different part on the social scale. You don't have the same kind of significance. For some people, it's success. Success equals significant. The marks you get in school or the progress you make in the uh, corporate world, being the top of your chosen endeavor. For some people, it's notoriety. Notoriety equals significance. And again, in junior high, it's who you know and who you hang out with, who you're known by, the right people, the circles you move in. For some, it's wealth. Wealth equals significance. And in junior high, it might be the, the clothes we wear, uh, high school, we may add a cell phone or an iPad. Uh, like, as adults, it's the vehicles we drive, the size of our home or the size of our TV, the vacations we take. That equals significance. For some people, it's power. If you're powerful, that, that makes you significance. Being the boss, being in charge, being the one at the top. Because we've been wired to need to be significant, we don't want to end up at the end of our lives and look back and ask, did my life really matter? So I think it's worth asking, what makes a life significant? I think we could probably agree that Jesus lived a life of significance. He lived a life that matters. But it's interesting, if we measure Jesus by our cultural standards, he wasn't significant at all. When he went to a party and somebody said, what do you do? Uh, he probably would say something like, well, for many years I was uh, just a laborer. I I'm a teacher now. Hey, that's cool. Where do you teach? What synagogue? Well, not so much um, synagogues. Um, boats. Hillsides. Out there. Um, you know, when it came to success, Jesus never climbed the corporate ladder of his day, and he was actually put to death by those who had. When it came to notoriety, his friends and followers were lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors, fishermen. They, they ranged from outcasts to commoners. And if it was in today's terms, Jesus would be hanging out with a few general laborers, some hell's angels, a local dope dealer, maybe some dope users, uh, strippers, AIDS patients, some mafia, and the odd civil servant. And those might have been hard to tell, the difference between, but... These were not the movers and the shakers of his day. When it came to wealth, he didn't have a fixed address. As far as we know, he didn't have a bank account. When it came to power, he was outside the Jewish religious system, and he was outside the Roman political system. He was really powerless. But somehow, Jesus lived a life of significance, of significance. And I love what it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. It's already been mentioned in the New Living Translation. It says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep, me com keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus says this to us. Watch me. Learn from me. I think you can tell an awful lot about somebody by what drives them. What is it that motivates them? What consumes them? And as I've studied the life of Jesus, it seems to me that there were two things that consumed Jesus. 
The first thing was simply doing his father's will. In John chapter 5, verse 19, it says this. Jesus replied, I assure you, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus lived his life to please his father in heaven. He lived for his father's smile. His father's well done. The second thing I see in Jesus' life is serving and loving people. In Matthew 20, verse 25, it says this, but Jesus called them, being his disciples, together and said, you know in this world kings are tyrants and officials lorded over the people beneath them, but among you it should be quite different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become your slave. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to serve, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. As I study the life of Jesus, it seems to me he was all about two things, carrying out his Father's will and loving and serving people. Those were the two motivating factors in Jesus' life, pleasing the Father and loving people. In fact, Jesus said that's the whole message of the Old Testament. Because in Matthew chapter 22, one day when he was asked, what's the most important commandment in the Old Testament? In verse 37, he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. We call it the great command. And Jesus said this, the, the whole deal, the path to significance is loving God and loving people. A number of years ago, uh, I, I started going for a number of years in a row to a wilderness camp in southern Alberta called Blue Brana Wilderness Camp. Uh, it, it is a, it's an amazing camp, and at the time they had no fixed buildings at all. Everything was tents, and uh, they had a horse trailer that they stored stuff in so the bears couldn't eat it. They had a propane range like you'd see in a, a commercial kitchen that they had on wheels that lived outside, and they cooked on that and on an open fire and stuff. And we did whitewater rafting and and uh, mountain hikes and some, you know, rappelling and that kind of thing. But my favorite was the horseback riding. And I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up around horses, but man, I discovered I like horses. Uh, and they taught us how to saddle them and how to care for them a little bit every time we were there. And uh, I, I loved the, the rides we would go on up into the mountains. And it wasn't a typical tail-to-nose trail ride like I'd been on as a dude. These, you actually had to drive these horses. They, they had minds of their own. I had one that was continually trying to knock me off and stuff. So it was quite interesting. It was a ton of fun. And one day we hadn't done a lot uh, of physical stuff. And after supper, we're sitting around the campfire and the director said to one of the, uh, the wranglers, and I've discovered wranglers are all a little, <laughs> I, I don't know if they've just been kicked in the head too many times or what, but they're, they're all a little um, unusual. And, and so he said to one of the Wranglers, hey, should we show these guys how to play cowboy bucket ball? And the Wrangler went, oh, yeah. And so he turned to us and he said, hey, you guys want to play a game tonight? Sure. And so he said to the Wranglers, okay, you guys go get the horses. And I'm going, a game on horses? Or are we playing against the horses? What's going on here? And so they brought all these horses, but they just had the, the halter and, and a lead rope, 
and they started assigning horses to us. And, and so the director said, oh, yeah, give that one to Randy. So I'm standing there in the big open playing field holding onto this horse, and he explains the game. At each end of this massive playing field, there's a horse blanket, and there's one ball, and the object is to get the ball while you're on horseback down to the other end of the field, drop it on the horse blanket for the other, uh, the other team's horse blanket. By doing that, you score a point. Um, now, there are a few rules. One rule is, while you have the ball, your horse can only take three steps. And I'm thinking, now I have to become a horse whisperer. I don't know if my horse can count. Uh, and, and if the ball hits the ground, only one person from each team can be on the ground kind of fighting to get the ball back. If you get off your horse, you have to hang on to it because it will try and run away, and then you'll have to go get it. Uh, the other rule was, there were no other rules. Uh, anything else went. And so they didn't have a saddle or anything. And I remember I, I said, excuse me, how are we supposed to drive these things? There's no saddle. There's no bridle. Like, what are we supposed to do? And he said, well, just take the lead rope, put it around their head, um, and, and fashion it into kind of reins and just plow rein them. Well, how do you stay on? There's no saddle. He said, just turn your toes out. I have no idea what that was supposed to do for me. And, and so we get on this and we start playing this game, but the wranglers are insane and they'll ride by and slap your horses behind and the thing will take off and there's nothing to hang on to. And as we played the game longer, the horses got more excited. And there was one guy, he's riding the horse, the horse stopped suddenly and put its head down and I saw him slide off the horse's back, down the horse's neck, and just as he got at the horse's head, the horse lifted his head and ejected him right out the back. He didn't even touch the horse on the way out. My horse in its previous life, before it became a camp horse, was a cutting horse, which meant it was used to making very tight turns and, and shifts to, to cut cattle out of a herd. And the more excited he got, the faster he would turn. And at one point I gave a little tug on his, on what, on, on the rein I'd kind of fashioned. He did a 360 so fast, I just went out the side. It was a ton of fun. I don't think I laughed more than that for a very, very long time. Really fun. Uh, I, I, we also in our family enjoy rodeos. So we'll go to the Innisfail Rodeo. You can get really close. We got, somebody gave us infield tickets to the Calgary Stampede one time. Now that's an experience. We were three rows behind the chutes, so you actually get to see what's happening. And, and they load the horses in, and some of them are so excited or whatever, they try and get out before the horses get there, and they try and stuff them back in the chute. But when it's, a when it's the cowboy's turn, if it's a saddle bronc, you get yourself in the saddle and you hold on to the rope. If it's bareback, you hold on to the little suitcase handle. You get in there, you get all settled, and then usually their hats are pulled down so their ears are all like this, and then you do this, which is cowboy for, yes, I'm ready to go meet Jesus now. And so their friends oblige them by trying to send them there. They open that gate, the cinch is uh, around the, the back quarter of the horse is tightened as he leaves, and they buck and snort and pass gas, and it's crazy. Uh, the horses, I mean, maybe the cowboys too, I don't know. Uh, it's insane. At one point, these ho one horse was released and started bucking, and a clump of mud came off its hoof and whacked a lady in the head in front of me. It was awesome. I, I, I think horses are some of God's prettiest creation. Uh, they're gorgeous. But I'm telling you right now, 
I don't know what your church budget is, but there's not enough money in your church budget to get me on one of those Calgary Stampede bucking broncos. And the interesting thing to me is this, these two horses look the same, but they're radically different at their cores. And it has to do with their will. One is completely committed to doing its own thing, and that doesn't include anyone on its back. These critters are fend-for-themselves animals, and no one's the boss of them. And if you try and get on their back, they're going to try and get you off. Whereas the ones I'm willing to climb on, although they're genetically the same, although they look relatively similar, they're quite content to allow me to get on their back and lead them around or do whatever. The only difference is one has been saddle broken and surrendered to the will of the rider and the other is not and it's rebelling against the rider. John chapter 14 verse 15 Jesus said if you love me you'll obey me. I loving God requires that we become surrendered to him. And God will not break us like a cowboy breaks a horse. Instead, he woos us and he invites us to surrender to him. But loving God requires becoming spiritually saddle broken. It's about surrendering our wills to the direction of our Heavenly Father. A life of significance is one that is living with a heart that's surrendered to God so that we can know and follow his direction for our lives. Many years ago, when my oldest daughter was, I think, just two, Donna and I decided we wanted a vacation, so we booked a vacation to go to the happiest place on earth. That's what it says on the sign. Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. I've come to the conclusion it is a pretty happy place as long as you don't have little kids with you, because little kids, it's not that happy on the way out. It doesn't seem to me. And so uh, we decided we would try and make it as happy as possible and left our two-year-old daughter with her grandparents and we went on vacation to the happiest place on earth. We spent a few days at Disneyland, then we drove down the coast to San Diego. We went to SeaWorld. And that day we went to SeaWorld, uh, we decided we would go to a restaurant that we'd spent a lot of time in Calgary going to when we were dating. It was the Spaghetti Factory. They had a store, a restaurant there. And uh, it was right downtown. It was in a pretty rough part of downtown back in those years. And we got there just before the close of work. So we had to park a long way away from the restaurant. But it wasn't a big deal. It was still light out. We walked to the restaurant, had a wonderful meal. And when we were done, the workday was well over. uh, And it had gotten dark. And so the streets were pretty much deserted. And so we started the multi-block trek back to our vehicle. And I was a little bit nervous. So I tucked Donna's arm in mine. I said, let's just go. And way, way, way off in the distance, uh, I I saw a a man that I believed was a homeless man walking toward us. And I just kind of kept my head down and kept moving. And he was across the street, but he crossed the street about a block in front of us. And I noticed that, and I just kind of kept my head down. And when I was maybe five meters away from him, I looked up, and he caught my eye, and he said, Excuse me, sir, do you have any spare change I could have? And I said, No. And by that time, I was close enough that he was able to put out his hand, and he put it on my chest to stop me. 
And he said, do you mean to tell me you don't have a quarter, a dime, or a nickel I can have? Now, the problem wasn't that I didn't have money in my pocket. Yes, I had money in my pocket, but I was not interested in giving him any because he'd just smoke it up or drink it up. Who knows what he'd do? And I pushed his hand away, and I said, no. And I pushed by him, and I was quite shaken by that encounter. And I hadn't walked very far before God started to convict me. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where God's Holy Spirit started to bug you, but God's Holy Spirit really started to bug me. And he reminded me of a scripture passage that I hadn't memorized it. I just sort of knew how it went. And it's in, Mark, it's in Matthew 25, uh, starting at verse 31. And it, it says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you and hungry and feed you and they, all those things? And Scripture says that Jesus will reply, whenever you saw the least of one of these and did it to them, it was like you were doing it to me. And then he'll say to the others, Apart from me, I don't know you. I was hungry, you didn't feed me, and he goes through all the same things. And they say, when did we see you that way? And he will say to them, when you saw the least of one of these, and you didn't do it to them, it was like you weren't doing it to me. And I was becoming deeply bothered. And so by the time we got to the car, I'd hatched a plan. I needed to get God off my back. And my best idea was to find this guy and give him $20 U.S., 400 Canadian, whatever it worked out to be. It seemed like a good deal at the time. $20 to get God off my back seemed like a fair trade. And we drove around looking for him, and we couldn't find him, so I could not just get God off my back with $20. And I spent the rest of the evening just in agony that night when I went to bed I prayed God I am so sorry with your help help me to never refuse to meet the needs of people that I can meet that you put right in front of me you see loving people is about investing my life my time my treasure my talents in theirs by meeting their needs. The hungry's need for food, the sick's need for health care, the homeless's need for shelter, the lonely's need for relationship, the mistreated and the marginalized need for justice and protection. A life of significance is not only one that is living with a heart that is surrendered to God so that we can know and follow his direction for our lives, but it's also living with our eyes wide open for the opportunities that God puts in front of us to invest our lives in the lives of those around us. It's living out the great commandment. That's how we live a life of significance. How do you begin? I think first we need to honestly evaluate our hearts. 
And we need to ask the question, have I, have I surrendered my will to my Heavenly Father, or, I am, or am I a spiritual bucking bronco? You know, because it's possible to, to look good. Uh, we, can, we can be active members of the youth group and contributing members of the church. We can be good churchmen and good churchwomen uh, and, and still be a spiritual bucking bronco. Have a heart that is rebellious to what God would want us to do. And God won't break us like a cowboy breaks a heart, horse, but he does invite us to surrender to him. And I believe that surrender is about letting him know that we will let him be boss of our lives. It's possible. To have been a long-term member of SunWest, but never have really come to the place where you say, okay, God, you can be boss of me. I think the second thing we need to do is we need to ask God to open our eyes. There's so much need in our world that some people purposely live with their eyes clamped tightly shut. A number of years ago, Donna and I joined a gym. Some of you are saying, well, that didn't work. You're right. It did not. We joined a gym to try and get in shape and secondly to make friends with people who might be far away from Jesus. And uh, I discovered some things. Um, I am lousy at making friends with people when I'm fighting for my life. And uh, it's just, it's not a good thing. Donna did really well, but I am kind of lousy at that. But there was one lady that Donna in particular had become quite good friends with. And uh, she would go away every winter for at least a month. She'd come back all tanned and looking fantastic. And uh, one year, Donna and she were working on some cardio equipment beside each other, and they just got chatting. And uh, she asked this lady if she had planned another winter vacation. She said, oh, yeah, we're going here and talk to Donna about it. And then she said to Donna, are, are you guys getting away this winter at all? And uh, she said, yeah, we are, as a matter of fact. And I think it was the year uh, that we first went to Haiti to visit our compassion kids. And uh, so Donna said, yeah, I'm going to Haiti. And uh, they talked about that a little bit. And this lady said, oh, I, I, I couldn't go to a place like that. And Donna said, why not? She said, I... I just don't want to see those kinds of things, especially on my vacation. The reality is, it's easy to purposely close our eyes and harden our hearts to the need in our world. Because it's so great. And it's all around us. Shortly after that San Diego experience, um, Donna and I became aware of Compassion Canada. And uh, I had prayed, God, if you put an opportunity in front of me, we'll do our best to meet it. And we discovered that Compassion Canada is a child development organization that's child-focused, Christ-centered, and church-based. And that simply means this, that my sponsorship goes directly to benefit that particular child. It doesn't go into a pot to do community development, although Compassion does do some community development. It goes directly to benefit that child. At least 80% of every dollar I send goes to benefit that particular child. The second thing is it's Christ-centered. That means we unashamedly talk about Jesus and, and extend to every Compassion child 
the invitation to follow Jesus too. Now, you don't have to accept Jesus to be in or stay in the program. But many children do. And also, every worker in a compassion project is a committed Jesus follower. And then church-based. If you go to a country where compassion works, you will not see plastered on vehicles compassion. Because they work through local churches who are already doing good work with children and then help them improve that. And so the parents don't look to compassion. They look to the local church as the ones who are help facilitating this. And we discovered that for $41 a month, we could help feed, clothe, and educate, also teach a trade to uh, a, a child, and they would systematically be taught about Jesus. Uh, we started with two children. We presently sponsor four. We've had four graduate from the program. I wish you could meet our little girl in the DR, uh, Angela, and I think we've got a picture of her when we first started sponsoring her. That's little Angela. And uh, we had the privilege of getting to go down and meet Angela. Uh, we went to her project. It was in a church. They, they had a, a performance for us on a Sunday morning, and we were sitting in the audience. And then as soon as they were done, they released the kids to come sit in the audience. And Angela, she knew that we were there, and she came running. I got down on one knee, and she flung herself into my arm. It was awesome. We got to meet her mom and her baby brother. And after church, we got to go do a home visit, which meant we got to go spend some time in her home. And we were taken to her home. Um, and we met her grandma and her great-grandma, who also lived there. And both of them were stone blind. Uh, the director of the Compassion Project was also a medical doctor. And he told us when Angela came to the project, uh, she had all kinds of parasites and horrible raging eye infections. And because of our sponsorship, she was able to get the help she needed. And he said she was probably on the same road to where her uh, grandma and great-grandma are of becoming blind because of that. When we met her mom, she was the most vacant human being I've ever met in my life. Like she was physically present, but it was like she was a hollow shell. I don't know if you've ever looked in anyone's eyes and sensed there was nothing but deadness on the inside that is the first time I've ever experienced that. Uh, their situation was very desperate, and we asked if we could sponsor her youngest brother, Yuri, as well, and Compassion allowed us to do that. Um, we later found out that one of the things that Angela's mom used to do to help provide for the family um, was prostitution. wonder she looked dead on the inside. We had some friends that were going down years later uh, to the DR, and they were going to visit some compassion projects. They were going to go to Angela and Yuri's compassion projects. So we loaded them up with backpacks and sent stuff, and would you please give this to them? And, um, but if you meet her mom, you're going to meet the most dead human being you've ever seen. It is just brutal. And so as soon as they came back, we wanted to know, did you meet Angela and Yuri? Yeah, we met Angela and Yuri. And tell us all about it. Show us the pictures and just give them our stuff. Yeah. And uh, did you meet her mom? And, and my friend said, we did not meet the lady you described. I said, well, did you meet her mom or, or what? No, we met her mom, but it wasn't the lady you described. And I'm going, well, well, are you telling me I didn't meet her mom? 
no, no, no. The lady you described is not the lady we met. I'm going, what are you talking about? I'm a junior high boy on the inside. Can you make sense of this for me? And he said, we met Angela's mom, but she wasn't that dead person you talked about. And she told us. Because of Angela's sponsorship and seeing what Angela was learning, she started going to church. And she's accepted Jesus too. That's $41 a month we spend. This is Angela today. She's just graduated this fall from the program, and she's been released from poverty in Jesus' name. I wish you could see what I've seen and hear what I've heard because I think you would jump right on board too. It's the best $41 a month we've spent. We also have what we call plus memberships. And you can add an extra $10 a month to your sponsorship to make it $51 a month, and then that extra $10 goes into community development things. You could start there, perhaps. There's a table in the lobby with some kids. It's a fantastic place to start at feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and caring for the sick and getting justice for the oppressed. But compassion isn't the only way to live with your eyes wide open. You could throw a party in your neighborhood and get to know your neighbors. And then start being Jesus' hands and feet in their world and using your time and your treasure and your talents to meet those needs. Maybe you could stop and learn the name of that street person that you go by on the way to work. Maybe it's about going on a mission trip. I, I don't know what it is. There's a million different things. But it's living with our eyes open and saying, God, show me a need, and I'll do what I can to meet that need. I suspect if you talk to the pastors here, they would have a few ideas too. But it's about inviting God to show us where we can use our time and our treasure and our talent to love and serve people. It's about living with eyes wide open and jumping in when God opens the door. The reality is, for some of us, the thought of living a great commandment life, a life of significance, actually may be scarier than the fear of insignificance. Because surrender really is a scary thing. I like to be in control. If I let God call the shots, what will he do? I don't know. Will it be safe? I don't know. What will he require of me? Will I get to carry on with my life the way I like it? I don't know what he will require of you, but it may not be that you just get to carry on status quo. Living eyes open is really a scary way to live because what you will see will break your heart and it'll upset your equilibrium and it will force you to change your values and it will probably cost you something. I have no idea what it'll cost to choose to live a life of significance by living out the great commandment. But I can promise you this. You will not be bored. You may live with fear, but it won't be the fear of insignificance. Let me pray for us. Perhaps as you sit there, you'd be willing to simply ask God this question. God, what would keep me 
from living out the great commandment of loving you and loving others and living a life of significance. Jesus Thank you that you didn't just stay in the halls of heaven and tell us how to live. You dwelt among us and showed us how to live. Jesus, would you help us? Would you help me to live a life that is passionate about following my Father's will? loving and serving people, meeting the needs of those people that you're putting in front of me. And Jesus, would you would you help those people that call SunWest home to be known for, as people who live lives of significance? People passionately, passionately desiring to do what you would ask them to do, surrender to you, and then willing to live with their eyes wide open and wade into meeting others' needs. Oh, Jesus, thanks for your patience and your gentleness with us. But we need your help. So God help us. challenged as I have. Thank you, Randy, for uh, coming and challenging us as individuals and as a community to open our eyes. Um, and for some of you, that might practically mean taking the step this morning uh, to sponsor a child. And we, there's a table in the foyer uh, with some compassion volunteers here. And we would invite you just to go have a conversation with them if you're interested in taking that step. Um, that might be just one practical way of uh, of opening our eyes and caring for the needs of those around us. Uh, our prayer teams are always available at the end of service, and so as we close, they'll come forward. And if you'd like prayer for anything uh, in your life, they would love to pray for you and to come alongside you in that way. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you, God, that you... There is no person in this world that you do not see. Uh, there's no person in this world uh, whom you would not leave the 99 and chase after. And we're reminded in this moment that uh, when the Scripture speaks of the hands and the feet and the, the voice and the activity of Jesus, uh, Lord, it often speaks uh, about us being the body of Christ. And Lord, we recognize we can't do anything, but we're one part of your body and that uh, we... We want to obey you. We want you to be boss, and we want to, to reach out where you tell us to reach and speak what you tell us to speak and see what you want us to see. And so, Father, we just pray that you would stir our spirits as a church, community, but, Lord, also as individuals, uh, that we would see as we go about our work days, our normal routines, Lord, that we would have uh, eyes that would see uh, those who need a healing touch. We need an encouraging word. 
Lord, if there's some practical ways that uh, you're inviting us to step out, that you're inviting individuals to step out this morning, uh, like sponsoring a child, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, confirm that in their hearts now, Lord, as they, they wait and uh, maybe invite you to, to lead them into the next step. Uh, and Lord, we thank you that, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and uh, we don't have to hold everything or feel the weight of everything, but we do need to hear what you're inviting us uh, to do. And so we ask you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. We will see you next week.